0: Fantastic to see such a, such a great turnout. Welcome, welcome to all of you. My name is Meenu Shafiq and I'm the director of the London School of Economics. And a warm welcome to everyone who's here this evening. This event is historic. It marks the occasion of the establishment of the London School of Economics School of Public Policy, which was created in August. And it's also the inaugural public lecture of its inaugural dean of our School of Public Policy, Professor Andres Velasco, uh, who became the dean of the school in September. Now you may well ask, why create a school of public policy at this moment? And as someone who spent a big chunk of my career in the policy world, I think policymakers have actually never faced such challenges as we face at this time. Confidence in institutions is uh, is in decline. Many of the assumptions that we all grew up with in terms of how policy is made are under threat, and there are new tools for the way information is generated and communicated, which change the way we operate. And so, actually, I can think of no better time to create a new institution than now. And no longer is policymaker making the domain of the usual policy wonks, technocrats and politicians. It is now the domain of everyone, business leaders, civil society, and every citizen. And... We need to train a new generation to solve these new problems. Or as my children always tell me, you've left us with such a mess. Now we have to figure out how to fix it. Which brings me to Professor Velasco, who brings to this role an exceptional... An exceptional breadth of experience, and we are incredibly fortunate at the LSE to have him with us. Rarely does someone combine academic excellence with real world policy experience. He was Minister of Finance in Chile between 2006 and 2010 at the height of the global financial crisis, which Chile probably weathered better than most countries in the world. He's also held academic positions at the Harvard Kennedy School and at Columbia and he has worked with governments around the world on a wide range of policy issues, and we are thrilled to have him among us. We're also joined by a fantastic panel, who I will introduce. Fortunately, when you introduce people who don't need an introduction, it's really easy. I'll just give you a sentence on each. Jason Furman is an LSE alumni, but he's also managed to do a couple of other distinguished things in his life. (laughs) (laughs) including uh, serve as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers for President Obama, and he is now at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Sarah Hobolt is a local distinguished person. Uh, She is the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions here at the London School of Economics, and a highly distinguished researcher who works primarily on issues around referenda, public opinion, voting behavior, and political parties. And finally, we have Yasha Munk, who is a lecturer at Harvard University and a leading expert on issues of liberal democracy. And his most recent book, The People Versus Democracy, has received considerable acclaim. So, the plan for this evening is I will now turn it over to Professor Velasco, who will speak for about 20-ish minutes, and then I'll ask the panellist to comment on his, on his remarks, and after that we will open it up to comments and questions from the audience, and we'll aim to wrap up at 8 o'clock. Let me now turn it over yes. to Andres.
1: Well, this is all very exciting, isn't it? You know, I ran for office uh, in Chile last year. I never had this many people in any <laughs> rally. Um, this is great. Um, makes me very happy to see you all here. Thank you, Minouche, for that uh, very kind introduction. Uh, this is not the Oscars, but let me just begin with a few thanks here and there. Um, first to Minouche herself for her vision and leadership in uh, taking this idea of a school of public policy and actually making it a reality, so thank you very much for that. Thanks to Julia Black, who's not here, who was the interim director of the LSE, and who persuaded the powers that be, the people who had to be persuaded. Without her, we wouldn't have a school of public policy. To Simon Hicks, front row here, who's a really able academic director of the uh, SPP, and who's also told me whatever little I know so far about LSE politics. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I am learning. To Tony Travers, uh, who was the uh, director of the institute that preceded uh, the school, uh, a man of great insight, wisdom, and wit. So thank you, Tony. And last but not least, Paul Sullivan, who's really the guy who runs the whole show, and his team for their ability, good cheer, capacity, talent. Thank you, thank you very, very much. So, the topic of uh, the night is populism and policymaking. And I want to propose that um, we begin by talking about not the present, but begin maybe with the past. This is what the initial prospectus for the LSE as a whole had to say in 19, sorry, in 1895. The LSE told the world that uh, the special aim of the school would be the study and investigation of the concrete facts of industrial life and the actual workings of economic and political relations in the U.K. and global institution, the world at large. OK? Um, good start. Now, of course, the founders of the LSE were Fabians, so they wanted not only to understand the world, they wanted to change the world. And that is, of course, reflected in the LSE motto. We want to understand the causes of things, but not for just any old reason. We want to understand the causes of things for the betterment of the world. So I'd like to think that by being here tonight and launching this school, we are sort of rededicating ourselves to the initial purpose of the LSE. Uh, we will train leaders, craft policies, advise governments, study you know, the workings of economic and political life for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is the betterment of society. Now, uh, this really matters. Um, I suspect I'm not alone in this room uh, in thinking that good leaders and good policies make a very big difference indeed. And I come from a country where we had the good ones, we had the not-so-good ones, and believe me, it makes a very big difference. Um, in some circles nowadays, it is fashionable to be pessimistic about the world, but I think Barack Obama got it right when he said recently, um, if you had to choose any moment in history in which to be born... You choose right now. Never has the world been healthier or wealthier. Never before was the world so well-educated and in some ways so tolerant. And I think Obama is right. Now, in spite of all of this, in spite of that optimism, in spite of lots of progress, um, we have a problem. Probably what is our most cherished political achievement, liberal democracy is today under threat. Let me give you some numbers. Today, 170 million Europeans live in governments that have at least one populist in the cabinet. Of course, nearly 330 million Americans are governed by Donald Trump. (laughs) And Brazil, a country of 210 million, which just elected a populist who makes Donald Trump look like an apprentice, really. Um, (laughs) At the Philippines, at the Philippines a country of 100 million, add Turkey, a country of 80 million, and you can keep adding, populism really is on the rise. And I think it's a challenge for democracies worldwide, but more locally it is also a challenge for an institution like the one we're launching today. And that's really what I want to talk about in the next few minutes. At the LSE, we're committed to all those good things, the use of reason in scientific inquiry, the use of data and analysis in figuring out which policies are good or bad. We believe in the open discussion of ideas because nobody has a monopoly on the truth, right? Well, typically these things wouldn't need saying, uh, and they're sort of obvious in a room like this, but I think they do need repeating today because this way of doing things is also under siege today. You all know, or most of you know, that in the midst of the biggest, most crucial debate in the United Kingdom for a generation, maybe more, a government minister a couple of years ago said, and I'm going to look at the quote because I want to get it right, people in this country have had enough of experts. We all know that quote, right? Now, you might think that that statement was just an outburst, but I now want to give you another quote from a man at the other end of the political spectrum, political theorist, Italian Norberto Bobbio, who said, quote, technocracy and democracy are antithetical, If the expert is the protagonist of society, this rules out a central role for ordinary citizens. So I think we have a problem, because on the one hand, we're here to launch an institution that will train technocrats and experts, and if Gove and Bobby are right, well, maybe the world doesn't want any more experts, and maybe the world doesn't want any more technocrats. So let me suggest whether this is a real problem or not, and what we should do about it. The easiest way, of course, would be to say simply, well, the populists are the populists. you know, it's their problem, let's blame them. And needless to say, they do deserve some blame. But I would also put it to you that uh, we technocrats and we experts and we advocates of liberal democracy maybe also have some rethinking to do. And uh, in the next few minutes, I want to contribute to that rethinking. And let me just sort of spill the beans on one punchline at the end, I want to suggest that maybe Gove and Bobby are not entirely wrong. Maybe, 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 expertocracy, government by experts, is not the same as democracy. And I want to begin by suggesting that uh, at this school that we're launching today, we should be in the business of training for leaders for democracy, not simply experts. Now, let me rewind a little bit and talk a a little bit about sort of the elephant in the room, namely, why populism and why now? And there's a standard explanation, very popular in the US, to some extent in the UK, and standard explanation says, well, look at median wages, they've been stagnating for a generation, look at the distribution of income, it is getting worse, and uh, the top 1% is getting the lion's share. Add to that the world financial crisis in which Wall Street and Main Street became enemies, and, well, no wonder then that politics is becoming very confrontational, very nasty. Well, if this story is right, then the policy conclusion is kind of easy, right? Um, you get rid of the politicians, the rascals who did all the banker's bidding, you increase taxes, redistribute a bit more, and uh, then you sit back because populism will go away. And I want to suggest um, that the standard account, which liter- the literature calls the economic insecurity hypothesis, is nice, it's appealing, sexy, but it's probably wrong. It is probably wrong, first of all, because it does not apply at all to most emerging countries, and it may not even apply if you look at the data to the U.S. and the U.K. Moreover, if you think only about economics, that can lead you to the wrong conclusions because. Focus on economics alone can breed complacency. You simply hope for the economy to recover, and that will take care of the problem. And I think that's a mistake. That is a dangerous um, mistake. We should not be making. Now I know. Please don't misunderstand me. That wage stagnation is a huge problem. Income distribution is a tremendous problem. Beginning with a country like mine. But all I'm claiming that they can be real problems that you can be. You know, I died in the World Economist. I am one, and nonetheless believe that economics is not behind populism. And let me argue why that might be so. Now, begin with um, the evidence from the advanced countries, from the U.S., uh, from the U.K. And I'm just going to read the title of two papers to you. Uh, And here, Simon has been my guide to the literature, so he tells me these are two good, serious, reliable papers. Uh, The first one, here's the title, Status Threat not economic hardship, explains the 2016 presidential vote. That's about Trump, of course. Second reliable serious paper, how right, racial and immigration attitudes, not economics, explain shifts in white voting. So the economist and the political scientists, looking at the data all seem to be moving in the same direction. And if you look at the UK, there's work done here Uh, very detailed micro work that goes in exactly the same direction. Uh, Good predictors for Brexit are demography and education. Bad predictors for votes for Brexit are exposure to trade, unemployment, or the extent of budget cuts. So if you have a race between economic insecurity and call it the cultural or political backlash hypothesis, then it's pretty clear that the latter is winning big time. Now, let's get out of Europe and North America, or at least out of Western Europe and North America for a minute. A fact that I think is very striking, doesn't really get all the attention that you should, is that if you look outside the rich world, uh, the populist surge, particularly right-wing populism, is happening in countries with very strong economic performances, which is exactly the opposite of what the insecurity hypothesis would suggest. Take Turkey. You know what the rate of growth of the Turkish economy was since uh, 2010, since the world crisis? I didn't know, but I looked it up. 6.9% per annum. Take uh, the Philippines. Same period. 6.4% per annum. So these are anything but countries experiencing economic failure. Take Poland or Hungary. You wouldn't expect them to grow that quickly because they are upper middle income countries, but they've been growing reasonably, 3% or so per year. Take Brazil. Well, Brazil clearly has not been growing a lot, had a mega recession over the last couple of years under the second presidency of Madame Rousseff, but the country has had very aggressively redistributive policies, first under Cardoso and then under Lula. And... um, if you're to believe the New York Times, not just Simon Hicks, but the New York Times also, uh, here's the New York Times on Lula. Uh, it says Lula benefited tens of millions of Brazilians with his social policies. And the New York Times reminds us that a decade ago, Barack Obama said that Lula was the most popular politician in the planet. So clearly, you know, somebody was doing something right. So... My conclusion, maybe the panelists will or will not share it, you know, in many of these countries populism is not the offspring of economic failure, it is the offspring of economic success. And one pretty obvious thought, if uh, economic failure, f- failure to redistribute, et cetera, were behind populism, well, you would be having a lot of left-wing populism. And yes, we have Maduro still waging war on, on his own people in Venezuela. Uh, We have AMLO, which has won the elections in Mexico. We have Syriza in Greece. But the really striking fact today, I think, is the advent of right-wing populism, from from, uh, Trump in the U.S. to Orban in Hungary, from Salvini in Italy to Bolsonaro in Brazil, or from Kaczynski in Poland to Duterte in the Philippines. And, you know, I think that these guys are going to pursue policies that will probably fail to improve, let me put it uh, cautiously, the distribution of income, and nonetheless... People are voting for them and cheering them on. So I think we may need economic change, no question about it. But we need political change as well uh, in a way that is, I think, pertinent to the way we uh, conceive the role of our school. And let me quote Jason Furman, uh, who's here with us tonight, who wrote a piece in Project Syndicate recently in which he says... In fact, the solution to our political problems may not lie in any new policies. He adds a couple of things which I'm going to skip because of time, and then he says there has to be a better answer than just lying to people about what our policies are capable of accomplishing. So it's the, the problem is I not the better po- <laughs> Sorry? I haven't found the better answer, Exactly. There has to be a better. Okay. So let me talk briefly about three things disenchantment with democracy, identity, politics, and a little bit about media, and then I conclude. So why is democracy failing, or why is democracy so troubled? Forgive me if I begin with an anecdote, something that happened to me exactly 30 years ago, almost to the week. Uh, 30 years ago, almost to the week, we Chileans were celebrating uh, a plebiscite, which put Mr. Pinochet out of office. And um, I, with a bunch of youngsters, you know, we still couldn't believe at 5 a.m. that we had won um, the plebiscite. We couldn't believe that the dictatorship had conceded. So we marched across town, and about, you know, when the sun was about to rise, we got to the presidential palace. And uh, we didn't know what to do at that point, because as you can imagine, um, you know, what do you do when a tyrant has been sent home without a shot being fired? Um, so we did what we, you would do. You know, we hugged, we kissed, uh, we shook hands, we jumped up and down, and then we kissed some more, and we hugged some more. Uh, there were policemen guarding the palace, so one of us, not me, gave one of the very heavily guarded, um, very armed policemen uh, a flower. The guy replied with a smile, so we hugged him too, we hugged his colleagues, we went home, got some sleep. You no, know, for the 1980s um, generation of Latin Americans, for us that was really sort of the dawn of freedom and democracy. You know, this was 88 in Chile, but the years before, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay had gone back to democracy, and the years immediately following, Peru, Mexico, El Salvador, many other countries would take steps toward greater freedom. So, you know, I had two professors at Yale, Al Stepan and Juan Linz, their refrain at the time was, democracy is the only game in town. And that was true, of course, in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, in parts of Africa, in parts of the Middle East, not many, etc. Now, what's the problem? Well, that feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? Um, things have really changed. Um, today, Venezuela is a dictatorship. Uh, Nicaragua is almost a dictatorship. Um, and in countries with consolidated democracies, you go and ask people, when, how do you feel about democratic performance? Let me give you two numbers. 16% of Mexicans say that they're satisfied with democracy. 16, 1, 6. As Brazilians, 9% of Brazilians claim to be satisfied with democracy. And if that's Latin America, of course, think about uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, It's even more dramatic, not not only because of the poll numbers. Uh, You know, not long ago, we thought of Poland, we thought of Hungary as sort of the poster children of democratic transition. Uh, You know, we looked at them with great admiration. Today, they're quasi-autocracies with... Bodies that were once autonomous, packed with government allies, the press under siege. Um, And maybe we can say the same thing of Turkey, of the Philippines, and a bunch of other countries. And of course, it's not just the emerging markets. You know, maybe the US and the UK and Western Europe are to some extent in the same boat. And the guy who's been writing very eloquently about that, of course, is Yasha. Um, Let me give you one quote from his book. He says Citizens had long been disillusioned with politics. Now they have grown restless, angry and even disdainful. Pretty powerful stuff, right? And it rings a bell. Uh, It sounds true. What's going on? It would take several lectures and several classes. Let me just give you a couple pointers. And you know, as somebody who's practiced real life politics, what I think is really at stake is that the gap between the democracy we preach and the democracy we practice is tremendous. You know, Lincoln at Gettysburg talked about of democracy, of the people, by the people, for the people. But what we do, and really, is we know, every four years we go and vote, and uh, in many countries, you don't even know who the candidates are because they were picked by political machineries. That's not exactly what, uh, you know, Lincoln's words kind of call to mind. So, you know, in this regard, I think the populists um, have a real appeal. They have real appeal, among other things, because um, they have dispensed with pluralism. You know, democracy can be sort of complicated, a checks and balances and endless debating. They have a very clear view. You know, this one right view, their view, the people's view, which of course they claim to represent. And it can be expressed uh, in a very simple way. One vote, call it a referendum. Um, and that's why um, populists love referendum, right? Uh, love plebiscites. It may or may not be related to Brexit. I will leave that up for your discussion. Um, One last thing about democracy, you know, we tell people that democracy is representative, because it is. Uh, We pay MPs to go to parliament and debate bills, but our language says, you know, that we have to be close to the people and close to their concerns, everyday concerns. And having run for office uh, last year, I saw my campaign and all the other campaigns displayed, you know, out in in the markets or on the streets, and every candidate gets told the same thing. We are told, hey, you politicians, we only see you at election time. We don't see you at any other time. And believe me, that really um, kind of puts a damper on things. Weber, exactly a century ago, in his famous lecture, Politics as a Vocation, warned that um, a risk to democracy was that uh, a political class would rise that would be disconnected with common citizens. And I think that's exactly what's happened. And today, the common citizens are saying, you know, we're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. And if you look at patterns of voting, I'm not a political scientist, but something that you kind of see pretty clearly is anti-establishment voting is really the name of the game. It happened to Hillary Clinton. Look at the recent elections in Brazil, in Colombia, the sort of nice, centrist uh, establishment candidates, 3%, 4%, 5%. So the message, I think, is pretty clear. The details vary, but the message is clear. You know. Traditional liberal politicians, particularly of the establishment kind, are the perfect fodder, uh, the perfect uh, food, if you want, for anti-establishment politicians. Now, this does not mean in any sense that populism is really, and some people have said so, a useful corrective for the failings of democracy. Democracy may have failings, but um, populists are not helping. Populists typically deny pluralism, trample on rights, are prone to demagoguery and to deception. So populism is a threat to liberal democracy, I think, not a useful corrective for the failings of democracy. Now, of course, what we need to do is reform democracy. And I don't have the time nor the expertise to suggest a long list of political reforms, there are people in the room who could do it better than I, but I think there's plenty of things that we can do that would bring voters closer to those who govern. Uh, um, I'll give you one example that I thought a lot about last year, term limits. Political scientists don't like term limits, typically, because you know, we like to think that we have experienced politicians who know the art of governing. Believe me, citizens feel very differently. And if you actually say no term limits and you have these very long established sitting parliamentarians, well, the backlash may be that instead of getting very safe government, you may get demagogues in power. Look at Italy, for instance. Okay. So my only suggestion is we need lots of innovations and a place like the LSE should be in the business of providing these policy innovations. Let me say a couple of things about identity politics. This is a hard subject for an economist because, you know, I was told that there is no such thing. We have preferences. But in economic theory until recently, there was no such animal as an identity. But um, as I look around the world, you know, I cannot understand politics without thinking about identity. You know, what do Brexiteers and Russian nationalists have in common? Their politics is about identity or Islamic fundamentalists. Maybe as the economy becomes globalized, the politics is ever becoming more local and gyrates around very localized identities. And of course, this matters for politics because identities are not individual. Identities are shared. Fukuyama has a great book, at least the first half of the book is a great book, Um, the the policy suggestions are not so great, Um, uh, in which he says, and I quote, individuals want not recognition of their individuality, but they want recognition of their sameness to other people. And he adds, citing Aristotle and Hegel and everybody else, that um, identity politics is everywhere a struggle for the recognition of dignity. Okay, And I think this is really a very powerful idea. And populists understand this. What do populists do? My favorite writer on populism is Miller at Princeton, in which he says, basically, populists understand that um, politics is about morals. And they also understand that uh, effective political language is about morals, and uh, it's about dignity. Um, Of course, in their view, there's only one morality, their own. If you uh, think about uh, the guy who governs being decent and the rest being the workers of a corrupt elite, sounds like Chavez or Maduro, doesn't it? Take away corrupt elite and put in, say, dangerous foreigners... Sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? Um, so this kind of rhetoric is common to lots of, um, lots of populists. So one way to think about it is to say that populism is a kind of identity politics. It's really us against them all the time. And of course, um, if this is the case, uh, we have to begin thinking about the, the role identity plays uh, in, uh, in contemporary politics. And I think... Um, You know, traditional elites haven't done this very well, Uh, so my first suggestion would be take our collective head out of the sand and begin to acknowledge that these things matter. Um, Secondly, uh, let us begin um, cutting back a little bit on elite arrogance. I have a long list that I will skip of examples of elites saying things that in fact betray an attitude toward the voter that is anything but reminiscent of being treated with dignity. And as such, elite arrogance tends to ignite identity politics in a particularly nasty way. So if you believe Fukuyama, and I think he's right when he says that identity politics is about dignity, well, elite arrogance is precisely about lack of dignity, and that makes identity politics much nastier indeed. Now how do we get away from these very narrow identities? Of course, countries that work well are countries or societies in which we have the narrow identities, but we also have overarching identities that are shared, right? And an able politician, a founding father or mother, an able leader is in the business of concocting these identities. And I think the question today is how and with what means and alluding to what ideas do we forge these broader identities in multicultural diverse societies uh, like the United Kingdom. Well, there's one idea that will not work. Identities cannot be based on blood and soil alone. Why, Why do I say blood and soil? Because many of you will be aware that this is what white supremacists in the United States chant when they go down the street. And I'm sure I don't have to persuade you that in modern diverse societies, we want a shared identity that is not based on blood and soil alone. What is the hope I think? What we need to do is build identities that are shared but are based on common values. Now I don't want to get too philosophical but this is hard for liberalism because liberalism presumably is an ideology or a way of conceiving of politics that says you do whatever you want as long as you don't harm somebody else. So liberals are very reluctant to say this is a common set of values. But there are ways around this. If you read Rawls, Rawls likes to talk about um, what he calls the, um, what did he call it? I'm forgetting now. The, the, Minus, mm? oh, doesn't I remember either. Uh, okay, Rawls calls it something or other. Um, exactly. Um, And the idea, basically, is that you can have a diverse society. You can have a society in which uh, there are many cultures and many ideas. But there's a core of shared democratic values, like toleration, like uh, respect, about which we can build the shared consensus. And I think there are two people who are doing it well uh, in in the world. Maybe the polls are not showing this, but one guy is Macron. You know, he's very proud of being French precisely because being French is all about liberté, égalité, fraternité, etc. The other, the other guy doing it very well is, um, is uh, Trudeau. Trudeau has beautiful speeches in which he says, what being Canadian is all about, is about being inclusive. Mm-hmm. That's the Canadian spirit. So I think um, this is really the, the task for people. And one last thought on identity. There's a beautiful book by Martha Nussbaum, the American political philosopher, in which she talks about the actual building of identities. And he says there are two people who got it right. One is Gandhi, one is Lincoln. What did they do? Well, in every word and the clothes they wore and the rights they prescribed, they helped create an inclusive identity for the United States, for newly independent India, uh, etc. So in some sense, uh, this is exactly what we ought to be learning at a school like the one we're launching today. The world is broad. We want to be an open, multinational, multicultural, global public policy school, but we should not forget that these identities are mostly today forged at the level of the nation-state. And given that that is so, we have two options. We have the toxic nationalism of populists, or we have what I would like to call patriotic liberalism. And I'd like to think that an institution like ours could be a full-throated, enthusiastic advocate for patriotic liberalism. One last thought, and I'm probably going on for too long, so let me uh, speed it up here. Um, It is hard to do this given the current media environment, right? if you watch uh, the West Wing or Designated Survivor, you will observe that presidents spend about 10% uh, of the time on policy, 90% of the time on communications. Right? I've never been a president, but I've watched presidents work. <laughs> Believe me, it is true. Right? And uh, cognitive scientists have done a beautiful job of telling us all the built-in biases and all the things that we do that uh, make us less than fully rational. For instance, um, we're much more sensitive to bad news and good news. We uh, really dislike losses much more than we value gains. Uh, and this is bad for politics. It's great for journalists, right? The journalists have long, underst- have long understood this. You know, they built a trade around it. I'm married to a journalist, and I learned a long time ago that good news is not news, right? Um, um, of course, the, 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 the adage from journalists that works is... If it bleeds, it leads, right? Bad news is really news. And the guy who gets it right recently is Pinker, Steven Pinker, in a paper in which he says, we have never seen on TV a journalist staring at a camera and saying, I am reporting from a country in which war has not broken out, right? Uh, we don't hear that. And necessarily then, the news cycle becomes short and nasty. Minouche recently gave her Lever-Hulme, uh, lecture and cited really compelling evidence uh, that comes from sentiment mining, which shows that across a number of countries, the political debate and the tone of the news has become nastier and much more acrimonious. Now, you know, talking about uh, cognitive uh, biases, talking about fake news is a bit like talking about the English weather. There it is. I'm not sure what we can do about it. Um, But there is something we can do about um, the response by liberal politicians. And that's the last thing that I'd like to share with you, because we're in the training of uh, teaching uh, such uh, leaders. And the point that I want to leave with you is that I believe that the response to this political climate by liberal leaders cannot be purely technocratic. Too often, policymakers think of themselves as sort of platonic kings. And they forget, we forget, that there are many reasons why voters, citizens, could distrust politicians. Now economists have lots of models that suggest exactly this should be the case, right? So a political leader is, above all, somebody who's in the business of creating trust. I like to think of a political leader, he or she, as being sort of the explainer-in-chief and the persuader-in-chief. Another mistake that we often make, we economists do, is that we propose policies in terms of inputs, you know, subsidies, you know, money that we put into the process. People don't want to know about this. People want to talk about outputs, jobs, houses, college educations, etc. And people also want a moral frame in which to learn about this. Um, and precisely, I think we have to follow roles in providing that moral frame, which is structured around those common values. Now, one last idea, which also comes from, um, from uh, the book by uh, Martha Nussbaum, Style Matters, and by this I don't mean the way we dress, I mean the way we speak. Populists have one thing in common, many things in common, but one that is very striking. They're passionate, they're emotional, you know, they deal in fear and trembling. They're very good at that sort of politics. On the other hand, typically, liberal politicians speak in polite, moderate uh, tones you know, suitable for a nice academic gathering. Well, you know, Sarah Hobart has studied the subject. Um, she has a paper on it. And she says that in democratic societies, the only time when you know, politicians actually appeal to emotion is when their platform is exactly the same as the other guys. Right? Um, that's the only way you can differentiate yourself. Well, I'd like to suggest that maybe we should do this more often. We should not leave emotion to uh, the populists. And, of course, the guy who did it best was Martin Luther King. Remember one, one of his many quotes. My favorite one is, you know, at the mall in Washington, he said, you know, I have a dream that my four little children will one day be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That is a fully emotional, political statement. And that's the kind of thing, of course, that makes voters, citizens, sit up and listen. Now, at the LSE, we cannot be in the business of training everybody to meet Martin Luther King. Maybe Minouche will tell you that we should be, and, uh, and I share the aim, but at least um, we can think of ourselves as giving people the tools to approach that ideal. And uh, we will do this in the following way. We will continue to do the things that the LSE is known for, meaning we will teach Students, all the hard stuff, all the econometrics and statistics. I see students nodding in despair. Yes, we will continue to do that. We have a reputation for being serious, and that's a reputation we're going to retain. But precisely because effective political leaders, I have argued here, um, are moral leaders and are communicators above all, we will also introduce political philosophy into the curriculum, and we will also introduce the kinds of skills not hard to teach them, uh, that make politicians compelling communicators. Couple other ideas, data science, the, the modern stuff, we know we will teach that too, and as Minouche said at the outset, we're not simply gonna be training politicians or technocrats, we will be teaching also leaders of civil society, leaders of private business, because today in the modern world, uh, power is much more diffused than ever before. So um, how do we do this? Well, in the way the LSC has always done things. Let me quote uh, Ralph Darendorf, who was the um, LSE director many years ago, in which he says that, in the early days, the school was an exciting place. The very things that concerned the intelligent public were happening here at the LSE. And if they were not li- literally happening, they were thoroughly studied, unconsciously taught, and debated with passion and with zeal. So studying and teaching consciously so that we can engage the public with passion and zeal. Sounds to me, at least, like a winning proposition, like an effective strategy for dealing with demagogues, populists, and authoritarians. So the LSE has been doing it over a century. I propose to you that we gather the strength and we hope for the wisdom. So, we can keep doing it for many, many years to come. Thank you very much.
0: Very good. Well, a passionate start. Let's, uh, let's turn to the comments. Jason, I'm going to start with you. And uh, you can do it from here okay. or from the podium, as you prefer.
2: Uh,
3: I'll stay here. Okay. Why not? So it's, it's great to be um, back at the LSE. I just had a fantastic experience here with all the econometrics, which I actually <laughs> loved more than some of my classmates did. Um, but also just the people I met live all over the world. They're people who, some of them I've stayed friends with, some of them I'll, when I was in the government, be at a meeting in another country, and the person would be a classmate of mine I was seeing for the first time in 20 years and was happy um, to be reconnecting with. So... I was really excited that the LSE was launching this school of public policy. I teach at um, a school of public policy in the United States at a university called Harvard. And a lot of my public policy work is on competition. And I'm a big believer in competition. So uh, game on. Uh, you know, wanted to start by saying I almost entirely agree with Andreas's political diagnosis. I think a lot of the problems we're seeing aren't my fault as an economic official for eight years in the Obama administration. (laughs) Really, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. Not defensive at all about (laughs) this. And, you know, I I think part of that is for the reasons he said. You see countries that have grown quite quickly that have had populism, like in Eastern Europe, Latin America, Turkey, um, and the like. Um, And also for the opposite reason. Donald Trump wasn't elected in 2000. Brexit didn't happen in 2000 but a lot of the explanations for them apply with even greater force you know, 20 years ago um, than they do today. Inequality rose more in the 15 years before 2000 than it has in the 18 years since. In the United States, we lost more manufacturing jobs in the decades before the year 2000 than in the decades um, since. So I think this slowdown of income growth The rise of inequality, the loss of manufacturing jobs, the dramatic changes in the economy, they've been happening for a really long time, um, and this is just happening um, now. If you look at attitudes on one particular economic issue, um, trade, the policies have changed a decent amount. The United States has taken a big turn, um, in the United States at least, taken a big turn towards protectionism. If you look at public opinion polls, people's attitude on trade hasn't actually changed that much. It's not that people are more anti-trade than they were 20 or 30 years ago. It's that they don't listen to elites and experts as much as they did 20 or 30 years ago. On some issues, that may be justified because the elites and the experts were sort of had a set of misleading ideas. On others, like should you get vaccines, there's a lot more people that don't listen to experts on that too, and we don't say you know, the people have spoken, Um, we we should listen (laughs) on that topic. So I think this is more a disintermediation of experts across the board, which then has ramifications in a variety of areas, um, including economic policy. So I broadly agreed with that um, diagnosis. Um, I don't want to go to the mat on debating that I certainly don't want to go to the mat on debating that with any of my other panelists because insofar as I know anything it's because I read Yasha's outstanding book uh-huh. and I still have a lot of holes in my knowledge um, because I haven't read Sarah's book yet uh-huh. But um, so I don't want to go to the mat so I then want to ask this next question let's say even if it is economic can economic policy um, solve it? There's an awkward fact for economic policymakers in advanced economies, which is that most of the tools we have can add a little bit to the economy or subtract a little bit um, to the economy. That's not true in developing countries. The difference between good and bad policies is the difference between China over the last 30 years and India over the last 30 years, which started out in the same place and now have a five-fold difference between them. Um, And India's policies have gotten a lot better and its growth rate has um, with it, but in the advanced economies, you look at you know a disastrous set of dirigist policies in France or a set of perfect policies in the UK, and you follow the countries for thirty years. They don't look that different um, at the end of those thirty years. Try to do a thought experiment of a particularly bad policy, where like the UK decided to leave the European Union, um, and according to the latest economic analysis, if that's managed really well output over 15 years will go down 2.5%. If it's managed really poorly, it'll go down about 9.5%. Both of those are over 15 years. They're about as big a number as I've seen in economic policy for an advanced economy, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they're big enough to dramatically change our politics. I mean, do a thought experiment, give everyone in the UK an extra £800 a year. You know, that's 2% increase in income. I think that would have dramatically change the politics here or how people voted, give everyone in the United States an extra $800, Um, same thing. So most of our economic policies are about adding a tenth to the growth rate, maybe two tenths, and if we screw it up, doing it in the opposite direction, I don't think those tools will dramatically change it. I think it's actually even a little bit worse than that because some of the things that add to our growth rate are also unpopular themselves. Um, The biggest tool we have in the United States to expand our economy is expanding immigration um, it brings not just people, but skills, ideas, innovation, competition. Um, that's not always popular. Trade expands output, um, but isn't always popular. And then there's a set of policies that I'm incredibly fond of that involve expanding the social safety net and making it more robust. I think the Affordable Care Act was a fantastic policy that President Obama did. It helped the roughly the bottom half of the American population quite a lot and politically, it was actually counterproductive. It didn't help politically. It probably hurt politically. It wasn't all of a sudden, you know, you compensated the losers from globalization, so now everyone was in favor of trade. It was now all of a sudden, like, you gave somebody else who wasn't me, who didn't really deserve it a bunch of money. You must have taken that money from me. Um, I hate you. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, what does this diagnosis um, tell me? Um, I don't take from this diagnosis nihilism. The most important thing I take from this is that it's really hard to predict the political impact that our economic policies have. And as an economic policymaker, I find that a little bit liberating. But to a first approximation, just do the right thing. No, That got 20 million people health insurance. President Obama knew he was going to lose seats in the midterm election two years later. I think we thought it would become more popular over time. Um, When President Trump tried to repeal it, it finally did get popular. Um, But until that point, it didn't. I have zero regrets about having done that policy. It was the right thing to have done. So I think to a first approximation, not every economic policy can solve populism. I don't think any of them can, in fact. And so, as an economic policymaker, don't obsess too much over solving populism. Obsess over raising incomes, improving the distribution of income, getting more people education, getting more people health care, improving different areas of the country, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are a set of economic objectives that are hard enough to figure out without figuring out the uh, politics. So that's your first approximation, get the policy right. Um, Second, I'd say where you sort of, it's pretty clear, it's worth trading off some of the best policy for some more political legitimacy. Um, We did fiscal stimulus in 2009, um, it turned out again everything we did was sort of unpopular at the time. It turned out to be a bit unpopular. Um, it was sort of like the person who blames aspirin for the fact that they have a fever. Was my view of the public attitude. Um, but you know, maybe we should have figured out a little better. Is there a way to craft it such that people like it more, or want more of it, and even if that's only eighty or ninety percent is good economically, it's worth the trade off. I wouldn't sort of give up a huge amount because our ability to predict politics is even worse than our ability to predict economics, but you mm-hmm. can give up some. Um, and then finally is the better way of talking about all of this. Um, one recipe we know works is to go out and lie. If you tell people that you're going to bring back all the jobs, protect all the jobs, bring everything back, and everything's going to be perfect, you can sort of get away with that for a bit of time. Um, as you know, I said in that piece that Andreas was quite kind enough to quote, Um, there has to be a better idea. Um, And would sort of close by saying, I don't think the choices are fear-mongering and technocracy. You know, President Obama, um, you know, he's pretty good at doing rallies. Um, He could be really inspiring. He had huge, huge crowds. And that wasn't because he was talking about American carnage and fear and disgust, uh, you know, and hate. Um, Beto O'Rourke in Texas came really close to winning the Senate in a state that's uh, very Republican and did it with a message that was almost entirely positive, optimistic, and affirmative, not negative and critical. So I think there is a way um, to thread the needle, to talk optimistically, to connect Um, I don't know that I'm the person to do it, which is why I'm never going to even try to run for anything. Um, But all of you can either choose the best economic policy, the almost best economic policy that's politically better, or figuring out how to communicate the almost uh, best economic policy that's politically better in an even better way. Um, And with that, I think we can make some progress on this.
2: So it's obviously a great honor to be here on this distinguished panel, and especially to celebrate the launch of the LSE School of Public Policy. I also noticed that I'm here with three economists, and I think you probably know this saying that If you ask five economists to give you a prediction about the economy, you'll get six answers. (laughs) I'm sure, of course, these people would get it right. But um, also, as a political scientist, we can't really sort of say anything about this after Brexit and Trump. We have to be more modest about our predictive ability. (laughs) But but I think we've talked about so far a lot about the causes of populism, but I want to talk a little bit about what it is. Mm Because I feel perhaps we've ended a bit there with populism. You ask five commentators what is populism, and you get six different answers. And I think it matters how we define it in terms of how useful it is and how well we can understand it. Uh, because if we simply, as sort of a liberal metropolitan elite, start labeling things that we don't like as populism, you know, we hear Trump to Putin, it's populism, Auburn, Brexit, Syriza. You know, we have to ask ourselves you know, is it really useful to use these sort of, is it what we call in the ivory tower sort of concept stretching? And is it useful um, to use that label to better understand it and to understand the consequences? Uh, If you ask a populism scholar what it is, they tend to come up with the sort of a a popular definition is that it's really the focus is that there's, that we're divided into two homogenous and antagonistic camps, the corrupt elite versus the pure, good people and that what politics should do is to represent the will of the people it's also, we often think of it as a thin-centered ideology in other words, it tends to attach itself to other host ideologies yeah? so that's why Andres was talking about you know, authoritarian populism or left-wing populism and so on, and I think that's important for how we think of it, is, you know, does it therefore make sense when we think of politicians or events or movement to label them all with populism? Is that the key thing they have in common? And I think, Andres was talking about this thing that our motto at LSE is to understand, I think a very laudable motto is to understand the causes of things. And I think sometimes when we use the populist label, uh, we might miss something. So let's take Brexit, because that's something I don't know if I know a lot about it, but I talk a lot about it at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, people like to call Brexit populism. Of course, you can say it's the very essence of populism because it was a referendum, and it was a referendum that went against the mainstream political and economic opinion. But on the other hand, I think if we focus on it as populist, we forget that the reason why we had this referendum is due to decades of infighting in the most mainstream of parties over Europe, the British Conservative Party. If we look at why public opinion was relatively euro in Britain. One of the reasons was decades of very Eurosceptic rhetoric by mainstream politicians on the left and on the right in Britain. And if we look at the campaign and analysis of who dominated the campaign, that wasn't Farage or other populists. That was mainstream cabinet conservative politicians. So we we, if we just say, oh, this is just some populist thing, we might miss important facts. Equally with Trump, obviously, if you read his tweets, he's populist. He loves you know, the elite versus the people draining the swamp. But also, why was he elected? Because he was elected as the candidate of the Republican Party. Otherwise, he wouldn't have won as an independent. And if we see democratic backsliding in the U.S., that will be the Republican, mainstream Republican politicians who are complicit in that. So we can't miss that bigger picture by just calling things uh, populist. And, And that leads me to sort of how we... My second point would be then it also influences how we understand the consequences, which is think a very important part also of Andrew's speech. I think sometimes there's a bit of a danger that, so you had this great quote, Andres, that if it's good news, it's not news. And of course, that's the case for journalists, but we are not journalists, yeah? So we have to be careful and not sort of just focusing on the change and just focusing on the events that fit that narrative. That's what we tell our LSE students. You don't cherry pick your cases to fit your narrative. You don't select on a dependent variable. Sometimes (laughs) we do that a bit when we talk about, oh, Brexit and Trump and it all sort of fits in neatly with the narrative. I think for us as analysts, as experts, as scholars. It's just as important to, to focus on the continuity. You know, what, what is it that makes democratic institutions work sometimes? What is it that makes them flourish? And not just when is it that they break down. And, and so I'll, I'm a scholar of Europe, so, so I'll just come up with a couple of examples of things I think we have overlooked, uh, because we, we, like the, we like the sexy, headline-grabbing change. So. For example, we talk a lot about the rise of populist parties in Europe, but what we don't look a lot at, which is something that, that, that Simon Hicks, who's been mentioned before, has looked at, is that if we look in post-war Western Europe, about three quarters of votes and almost all offices for, in the post-war period have been dominated by social democratic parties, Christian and conservative parties, and liberal these big mainstream party families, and that is. You know, remarkable in some sense, the continuity of that. Now we talk about the rise of the alternative for Germany, the populist far-right party in Germany, but we don't focus on the rise of the Greens because it's not as exciting, although it's just as big. In Switzerland last week, there was a remarkable referendum, the most innocent yet most populist proposition of all. You get a say as the people on every future international treaty, what's not to like? The Swiss really (laughs) like referendums. They They think it's a good thing, yet... They overwhelmingly comprehensively voted it down, but we don't want to study that. We all want to study Brexit because it went the other way. So that's just to say we need to look also at some of these things that, in a sense, go the other way, some of the balance, the context of this. That doesn't mean we should be complacent at all, but it means to understand that I think we also need to look at the things that work well. And I think that's exactly the role for the for the School of Public Policy here, to train people who are more critical, more rigorous than the commentators, the politicians, uh, sorry, not politicians, I, um, I mean the journalists. The journalist, and therefore can also be better leaders and better experts in the future. Thank you.
4: Um, so in his famous Iron Curtain speech in 1946 in Fulton, Missouri, Winston Churchill said that an Iron Curtain was descending across the heart of Europe, mm. from Staten in the Baltic all the way down to Trieste in the Adriatic. And the striking fact about Europe today is that you can drive along the whole of that Iron Curtain, covering Poland and Hungary and Austria and the beginnings of Italy, and you can keep going down west to Bari or down east to Athens, and never leave a country ruled by populists. Um, So I think that uh, there's a reason for looking at certain cases, which is that there is incredible change that political scientists said would never be possible five or ten years ago. And that means that we live in very disorienting times, in which, uh, as various people have outlined, populists rule in a tremendous number of countries, and do actually threaten the very basic political institutions that we took for granted for many decades. Yesterday I gave a lecture at the Central European University in Budapest, which is faced with closure by a man who was democratically elected, but who then went on saying that he alone represented the people to put his loyalists into the country's Supreme Court, to change out all the journalists that the state broadcaster to make sure that it just broadcasts propaganda, to bring the private media outlets under his own control, to exchange and under the electoral system, so that it's now no longer possible to get rid of an elected prime minister through democratic means. And he's starting to close down the space for civil society, making sure that what perhaps is the best university in Central Europe is likely to announce tomorrow or the day after that it has to be flee a country that continues to be a member state of the European Union. So I think the danger for this moment continues to be that we understate the extent of change and the amount of threat that liberal democracies face rather than that we wind up focusing on some of the developments like Donald Trump uh, and perhaps underestimate the rise of the Green Party in Germany, lovely for that is. Um, But so for me, the question that that raises is how policymakers have responded, whether they've responded adequately, and if not, then what a newly founded school of public policy might be able to do to make sure that the next generation of public policymakers who hopefully are represented in this room uh, can do better. So I want to just very briefly focus on those two questions after I apologize for starting my talk by uh, quoting somebody who does not have a degree from the LSE. Um, (laughs) That Winston Churchill, I think, still deserves to be quoted uh, for the reason that he doesn't have a degree from any other university either. So <laughs> that <they support> makes <laughs> a um, I think po- policymakers in the last few years, and institutions more broadly, in the last few years, have responded in two ways. The first is with an astounding flexibility of values. I think there is a tremendous amount of self-doubt and self-flage- self-flagellation among people, who suddenly say, you know what, if the people don't seem to want liberal democracy, if they don't seem to be committed to the basics of our political system, then perhaps we should just throw in the towel and run after their preferences and say, perhaps we don't need independent institutions. Perhaps it's fine if we no longer have a rule of law. Perhaps we too should start to engage in hate-mongering and so on and so forth. And you see that in part, through the phenomenon which I think is the nature of a populism, that in some countries where the party systems are less flexible, populists have simply taken over established political parties. It's not that Donald Trump is not a populist. It's just that populists have taken over the GOP. You see the same thing with uh, many center-right parties in Europe when you look at the government in Austria, for example basically starting to act like the populists and go into coalition with the populists, even though they are inimical to some of the basic values of the system. Now, I also think that there's a certain counter-reaction on the people who genuinely and righteously abhor the populists. I think one of the dangers for those of us who think that populism is really dangerous is that we say, well, you know what, perhaps the only reason why populists arose is that our societies were so deeply corrupt, that things were so deeply wrong, but the principles which we actually said we represented are so imperfect that we should give up on them altogether. Instead of trying to strive more wholeheartedly to realize principles which perhaps never quite treated everybody equally, to make sure that they actually give everybody what is their due, we start to say, well, so perhaps all of those principles were always hypocritical to begin with, let's throw them out and try to create something new entirely. So that's one of the things that struck me over the last few years. But at the same time at which elites have been astoundingly flexible in their values, I think they've been astoundingly inflexible in a lot of their actions. I was talking about Hungary a moment ago. It is absolutely striking that the ruling party in Hungary, which has managed to turn the country from a liberal democracy into an illiberal democracy and from an illiberal democracy into what, to all intents and purposes, is an elected dictatorship, is still a member of a faction of the European People's Party, the normal center-right party in the European Parliament. It is astounding that the European Union continues to subsidize an elected dictatorship in its midst with billions of euros every single year. It's striking that all of those elected Republican politicians in the United States who run up and down Washington, D.C. to every traditional watering hole from the Mayflower Hotel Mm -hmm. to whichever other bar and telling everybody how awful they think Donald Trump is, and yet they vote for everything in the House and the Senate. Yet they don't actually pass a law to protect Robert Miller when it's quite clear that he may be fired any moment now. But it's easy for us coming from academia to point as politicians and say, why aren't you reacting? Why aren't you actually changing how you're acting? Why aren't you saying, you know what, Fidesz was a decent liberal democratic party 15 years ago. That's when it joined BEPP. Now it no longer is, so we've got to throw it out. They're unable to act. But you know what, a lot of academia is unable to act as well when you look at how fundamentally the political world has changed over the last two or three years, and when you look at the syllabi of political science departments, you look at the structure of universities, you look at whether or not they're actually trying to re-emphasize the importance of civic education, of shared values, the answer is that they aren't doing that. And that is something that we should reflect upon as well. Now, I think the wonderful thing is that LSE does seem to be responding, and it has an opportunity to really think about what its new institution should look like, what kind of values it should embody, and how it can make sure to train policymakers to do better. And so it seems to me that the best guiding principles is to aim to do the inverse of what we've seen over the last few years. Mm -hmm. What it should be aiming for is an inflexibility of values, And the flexibility of action. And I just want to very briefly say what I mean by that. The inflexibility of values is, and I think you've put that beautifully in what you were talking about, that we need leaders for liberal democracy. We're not just educating people to go and join any old regime and make sure that the top guy is able to effectively carry out their policies. The mission of this school should be to further the values of liberal democracy, which are, first of all, individual freedom, that we want to live in societies in which we each get to decide what to say or not to say, which God to worship or whether to worship a God at all, how we lead our private lives. And in order to do that, we need to find a way to persuade voters to be willing and be enthusiastic to protect vulnerable minorities, but we also need to sustain incredibly complex independent institutions and the rule of law so that an elected dictator cannot say, as in Hungary, I don't like this university, I'm just going to push them out. But we also need to think about ways in which we can make more real the promise of collective self-government so that we don't have uh, a dictator, an army general or a priest or somebody else telling us how we should live, but that we together actually make those effective decisions. And that means that there's not uh, so many institutions in which experts and technocrats make the decision that a lot of people start to say, I don't actually feel like I have something real to say in that society. But at the same time, it's not just a rearguard action because rearguard actions tend to lose. It is to realize that those values which I just talked about Are actually incredibly radical. And that while they are better realized in our societies today than they were 30 years ago, and they're certainly better realized in the liberal democracies of the world than they are in Turkey or Venezuela or North Korea, they're not nearly adequately realized in our societies. And the task we should have is not just to defend our political order, it's to do what we can in order to make sure that we live up to these ideals more fully and more proudly than we've done so far. And so that's, I think, the basic task. Defend what you called a patriotic liberalism. Uh, I think that an institution like this new school of public policy can make a tremendous contribution to that. Mm. And from everything I've heard this afternoon, this early evening, um, I'm incredibly excited to see uh, how you're going to do that because it couldn't be done under, under better leadership. Wonderful.
0: Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to turn to the audience for comments and questions. I'm going to probably, given time, take about five-ish questions, if people could be brief, and then I'm going to come back to the panel and, uh, and let them respond. I'll take the woman who's here. I'll take you here, Michael, and then I'll take the gentleman in the back. Yes, the, the woman who's right here. Looking for another woman. You can have a go, Simon, why not? Yes, the woman was right there. And then Michael over here. I could have, yeah, over here. And then we'll take the gentleman in the back and then Simon. And please introduce yourself
5: uh, before asking your question. It's open. Okay, um, well, good night. Thank you for the, the panel and dress. I'll introduce myself. My name is Juliana. I'm doing a master's here in social policy. Um, I'm Brazilian. I'm a civil servant for the Brazilian federal government. <laughs> uh, I worked for the last five years and the uh, Ministry of Social Development. Um, I, would be, I would say that I'm um, a product of Lula's uh, policy to try to professionalize um, bureaucracy in Brazil as well. So, um, as Andrea said, Brazilians don't trust their government, and they don't trust um, bureaucracy as well. In Brazil, they don't trust democracy and bureaucracy. And uh, I, my um, after here, i have to come back and work for Bolsonaro's government, so <laughs> that my my question be more related, and it would sound like a plea. Um, <laughs> um, how? Um, how to act like bureaucratic in a government that you don't agree with. And um, mm-hmm. it's very really complicated. And you are, when you have your um, agency constrained mm-hmm. as well, like with your morals, with your, um, as well as your knowledge, you're constrained in, in a sphere that you don't really uh, know how to act. So uh, it's more like a practical question. (laughs) Okay, thank Thank you you very much. Over here.
6: All right, so um, my name is Mike Otsuka and I'm a political philosopher um, at the LSE. I want to push back against the pessimism regarding technocratic policy with respect to healthcare in particular that Jason, that that you raised. So um, I think you're overgeneralizing from the American example. Take the UK example, 1997, Blair took power after 18 years of cutbacks to the NHS reached the point where it became politically popular to argue in favor of a, a slight rise in taxation, maybe £800 pounds per person, I'm not sure exactly what it was, mm-hmm. in order to fund the NHS, to get rid of the, um, uh, the, the, the weights and the people in corridors and the like. And now we see, once again, 2018, Eight years of well, I'm not trying to be partisan. Non-labor rule and the similar uh, crisis with the NHS, where once again austerity is now no longer popular, and, and the government is is now spending more money on the NHS. And um, in 2012, the Olympics, Danny Boyle's opening ceremony, the NHS. I mean, in addition to James Bond, that the NHS actually played a starring role spectacularly um, in the opening ceremony. Now contrast the United States, you, you mentioned that Obamacare was not a vote getter <laughs> um, but I think the explanation is well th- this, is, this is a gain as opposed to loss aversion there's sort of loss aversion against cuts to the NHS twice in the UK um, Obamacare was an improvement but I think that if you keep it there long enough then you will get the loss aversion and I think it's already showing to Medicare and Obamacare and Pre-existing conditions, where it will finally become uh, a, a, a political issue, even if though it wasn't in the time of Obama.
0: Okay, thank you, Michael. Gentleman in the back, and then I'll come to Simon Hicks, who's here, and I'll take. I want a woman. Is there a woman mm-hmm. with a question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there yeah.
2: you go, over there, over
7: here. Uh, thanks, um, Mark Fabian from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Um, I was just wondering if the panel could comment on whether they think that corruption has a role to play in in the rise of populism. So to what extent is the liberal elites actually corrupt? Um, so on the one hand, yes, uh, the move to technocracy over the last few decades has led to big improvements in the quality of public policy. But meanwhile, some people certainly perceive that uh, large parts of the political apparatus have become dominated by lobbying interests. I know that Gillens has all these papers suggesting that the U.S. legislative outcomes increasingly favour the rich. The IMF and, and the broader response to the financial crisis was seen by a lot of people as bailing out banks and their executives rather than the people, these sort of things. Um, Bolsonaro has a reputation for not being corrupt, even though he is populist. Is there a sense in which maybe we're overlooking the fact that the technocracy has gotten a bit too cosy with, with moneyed interests? Okay, thank you. Simon. So, uh, Andreas, uh, Simon Hicks from uh, School of Public Policy, LSE, and the Government Department. um, You made a, a plea for adding philosophy to a curriculum which is dominated currently by economics and politics. Well that's not particularly new to British ears, we've had, uh, you could essentially call this PPE for Uh grown-ups. That's
2: worked out well.
7: Uh One of the problems, of course, we have in Britain is the public perception is that part of the problem we have in this country is we've got generations of elites who've had PPE for smaller people. Uh, (laughs) And perhaps uh, Sarah could also comment, having come from Oxford and taught at PPE at Oxford, Uh, the accusation is that PPE is actually not particularly good uh, basis for for training people to be leaders uh, um, so is it that it's just PPEs be done badly at Oxford or is it actually that the curriculum should be broader than PPEs <laughs>
1: great point
2: and the lady in the back um, hello uh, my name is Manon um, so I'm a former student um, of the LSE and I work uh, in a bank uh, in the global market uh, department my question is around uh, basically where do you think the environment the, all the challenges around uh, the environment uh, fit within the program and within, um, well, bringing uh, tomorrow's leader um, and making them able to, to tackle this. Because I guess that in the, uh, in the values of uh, liberal democracy, that there might also be a dimension um, around, uh, yes, around the, a more global topic that is the environment and, and, and the challenges we know right
0: now around it. Thank okay. You. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to give you the last word out it, so I'm going to start at this end and uh, let you react to any of those questions yes.
3: and comments. Um, so I, I'll just take two of them. One is on the Affordable Care Act. My point is not that every time you do something really fantastic, you get punished in the next election. Um, my point is just not to assume that any time you do something fantastic, you get rewarded in the next election or even the election after that or even the election after that. So... It was not sort of a, yeah, you're always punished, it's just don't think that good policy is gonna always solve the political problems you want, but it'll always do the good thing you want it to do, or at least you can be more sure of that. Um, on the woman from um, Brazil, I was um, uh, running the Council of Economic Advisors the morning after the election in 2016, brought my staff together for a meeting and you, know, a lot of them were crying. A lot of them were really upset. Um, my job was going to end on January twentieth, two 2017, no matter who was elected. Um, I was slightly tempted not to resign, because then I would have been fired at 12:01 p.m. on 2017, <laughs> which would be a way better story. Um, but you know, my staff had the question of, should they stay on, um, and should they continue? And um, you know, my view was that they should. Um, that each one had to make a decision. That it was totally reasonable decision to leave. It was totally reasonable decision to stay. Um, but I just didn't think everyone could leave the government. Um, the Council of Economic Advisers is meant to be a technocratic organization. One can debate whether it is more or less at any given point in time. Um, but I felt better that a lot of them um, did stay and did stay providing analysis. You know, even if that analysis was ignored. I don't think you know <laughs> uh-huh. had they. You know, been in the you know charge of in separating children from their families and putting them in camps. Um, you know I'm not sure I'd say stay do that as a civil servant. Um, but you know, there's an awful lot of stuff you need to do and, and things change. I mean, our students from the Kennedy school now ask me also, should they take a civil service job in the Trump administration? I say absolutely because you're going to be there five years from now, ten years from now, um, there's going to be a different president. So I don't think everyone can always be sort of fighting for the better political thing. Some people need to just be doing it a little bit better now and hoping things change.
0: Sarah. Do you have any?
2: On the corruption question, I mean of course that's true. I mean there's not only a, sometimes a perception that the elite is corrupt, sometimes it is. And that of course also makes it I think arguably easier for that's what the evidence shows for populist party to better. From a European example, I think one of the reasons we are where we are today in Italy is that in the 1990s, the party system broke down because uh, the ruling party and even uh, was so corrupt, you know, and of course that left a vacuum. So I think that is that is certainly, you know, a, a, an issue, not surprisingly. On whether PP is the right thing, I mean, I think having taught seven years in the PP degree, <laughs> it's an excellent thing, and I know we do it even better than Oxford... Uh, just slightly <laughs> slightly less uh, face, I think one problem with the PP degree and why we now see this problem is that it 's not about how PP is taught it 's about it 's a very small, entitled elite. That basically runs British politics, and it looks like sometimes it looks like, for example, the Brexit thing is a sort of Oxford debating society thing continued into politics, and people want you know politicians who deal with real issues and real problems and not about oh who's going to be the next prime minister sort of thing. So I think that's the problem, not uh, that the combination of politics, economics and philosophy, I think is fantastic
4: I'm, I'm trying to think whether to engage in this petty academic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me, let me do it for 10 seconds. I, oh. um, I, I don't think the problem is PPE. I actually, the problem is, uh, an even more arcane thesis, uh, the British grading system. So I came to this country as an undergrad, and I love the, the spirit of universities here because I grew up in Germany where, of course, the thing that was rewarded is to write very long sentences that nobody understood and if my teacher didn't understand what I wrote when I got an A <laughs> which meant that I didn't do any work in school ever because mm-hmm. you know your book is terrible in that regard <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think people misunderstood that but thank you Jason <laughs> um, but, of course, here, you know, the, 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 the sort of most damning thing that, that, that uh, somebody, whether it's at LSE or at Cambridge or at Oxford, will say to you is, well, you know, that's a high, you know he's a high-to-one kind of a student, right? And what does that mean? A high-to-one kind of a student is somebody who has read the literature and comes up with a very reasonable answer. Whereas, of course, to get a first, we have to argue something that's brilliant and counterintuitive. <laughs> And I think when I look at the leadership of this country right now. um... (laughs) So that was that. Uh, my, my next piece of arcane pride is that you know what was it? Five economists come up with six uh, answers. I think there's two political scientists on stage, and we're even better than them. We can come up with four opinions between us. Um, so look, I, 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 I you know going to the question about corruption, um, I don't think that there is a tension between recognising the danger that populism represents and recognising that populists are a social, ca- are a political category in themselves. That, that is coherent, and that, that category helps us understand the world. It helps us understand, for example, how two very different parties in Italy, one which is very far on the right and one which originated on the left, can nevertheless form a reasonably coherent government. It's because they're populists. Um, and what they have in common is just the rejection of the elite. Now, I also think, and there we agree, um, that this rejection of elites is more justified in some countries than in others, and is probably somewhat justified in every country. And certainly... Um, uh, you know, when I was in Milan a couple of weeks ago and spoke to somebody uh, incredibly cultured, incredibly knowledgeable, telling me about how much more wonderful Milan is today than it was 30 years ago because the city has become so much more uh, rich culturally and diverse and so on. And then he tells me, yeah, I voted for the Lega because I tried everything else and they all screwed up. I-, I don't think that's a rational decision because I think this government is going to screw him over even more. But I think the analysis is absolutely right, right? I mean, the, the, when you look from, from Berlusconi to a bunch of other governments, they did all screw up, and a lot of them really were corrupt. And, of course, it helps to explain why this very reasonable, very cultured, lovely guy ended up voting for a party of thugs. So so that is a big part of the explanation. I just briefly want to respond to, to I think, the, the, the question that came most from the heart, which is about uh, the the fate of civil servants. And I agree with Jason that I think everybody has to decide for themselves whether they want to go and uh, uh, fight outside the government for for the good forces, whether they want to make sure that we have reasonable, competent government and that civil servants live up to their duty, which is not to serve the boss. It is to serve the Constitution, and every democracy formalizes that in some kind of way. But I also think that it's easy to be naive going in and saying, I know where my red lines are going to be. I'm somehow going to be able to put up resistance. So um, I very uh, uh, hastily uh, uh, drew up a four-point plan, which is far from perfect, but which hopefully gives some guidance. So the first is go back, serve the administration if that's the choice you make, but get a plan B in place. Think about what it is that you want to do if you feel like you have to resign. Whether that's the restaurant you've always wanted to open up or the novel you've always wanted to write. Make a relatively concrete plan because the ones (coughs) book I've read in my life that's actually helpful is a book about negotiation um, written, sorry, by some Harvard professors um, (laughs) called Getting to Yes. And what it says is you need to know what your best alternative plan of action is is. Yes. you need to do that if you go into the administration. The second thing is set out your red lines in writing before you go into that environment. Because as we're seeing in the United States, it's incredibly easy in the day-to-day of that for your idea of what is acceptable, what is stomachable or not to shift. So set it out. Think about it in some detail. You can't predict every crazy circumstance that will arise, but you can put in some basic guiding lines. And once a month, look back and say, have we reached these red lines? The third, what do you actually do while you're a civil servant? Well, James Scott has a wonderful piece of literature about uh, everyday forms of peasant resistance. So embrace that you're a peasant, embrace (laughs) that your master is a very unpleasant guy, and do what James Scott reports in Indonesian proverb advises. When the master walks past you, bow deeply and pass wind. (laughs) (laughs) Which is to say, don't do big showy pieces of resistance like that ridiculous op-ed in the New York Times a few months ago. But do try to do what you can to obstruct the worst pieces of legislation and so on that actually violate, not things that you dislike, things that violate the rule of law and the basic norms of liberal democracy. I'm in the fourth piece of advice: when the moment comes, try and find a moment of principle, something that you can actually communicate to the outside as a decision that you take for a, a, a deep, reasonable value, and stick to your guns and quit.
0: Okay, just, the last word.
1: What a responsibility! Well, before I utter any last words, um, I want to just say thank you again. Great panelists, Um, I thought I had thought long and hard about this issue, but I jotted down lots of things that I had not thought about, so um, I think that's a hallmark of a great panel. Thank you all for joining us. I want to react briefly to some of the things that were said. Um, We were all moved by the Brazilian questions, so I cannot resist the temptation to say something about it, too. I'll be brief. First, it's a terrible thing in societies when the government changes and the civil service all goes home and changes again. An element of continuity is a hallmark of civilization, so don't feel guilty about providing an element of continuity. However, follow, I will give the advice to you that an old, you know, very seasoned uh, minister gave to me when I joined cabinet. He said, in your job, young man, I was young at the time, always carry your resignation letter in your pocket. Um, <laughs> and I did, and I did. Got kind of crumpled after a while, but um, you know, do have it in your pocket. Uh, it may come in handy at times. Effects of policy, I think Jason gets it absolutely right, Um, you know, we economists in particular tend to oversell the value of our wares, um, and uh, that's a terrible sin, however, just for the sake of argument, uh, your remarks are most relevant and most applicable in rich countries, and you said that, you know, let me just say something that many people in the audience will know, when you get it wrong, boy, it hurts. When I, when I was growing up, Venezuela was by far the most prosperous uh, country in uh, Latin America. Per capita Venezuelan income today is exactly the same it was the year that I was born, and I was born 58 years ago. Um, uh, inflation in Venezuela today uh, is expected to be 1 million percent per year. Um, and the calories you can buy with a minimum wage today are something like what one-seventh of what you could buy in August. Okay? So in a fairly prosperous, upper-middle-income country, people are going hungry. So yes, uh, when you get the policy right, you optimize those little triangles that we economists like. When you get the policy wrong, they're big squares that are tremendously painful. Um, and of course, given that people here are studying policy, we should remind them that, yes, policy is important, right, in, in, different, in different contexts. Corruption. Um, I had a great uh, quote that I did not uh, read out in the interest of time from Fernando Ricardozo who used to be the Brazilian president who says, he said in the New York Times or the Washington Post recently, uh, Brazil has had four presidents since uh, the return of democracy. Two were uh, impeached, one is in jail, I'm the only one who's not. Um, uh, if you look at Peru today, every single president uh, since the restoration of democracy and one who was not exactly democratic is either in jail, has been in jail, or about to be in jail. So... Um, The question of, does corruption matter for the legitimacy of the elites? Yes, of course it does. Um, My only addendum to that is, let us not take it as an explanation for everything that goes wrong in a way that is too easy. Uh, I I can tell a Harvard story, too. Uh, When I was a professor at the Kennedy School, I was once taken to a very proper dinner with a bunch of potential donors. Um, And a man who clearly had a very high net worth pointed to me and he said, Oh, you're from Latin America. I would never invest in your of the world because you're all really corrupt. Um, And then I said, oh, you know, uh, I was trying to be polite. He could be writing a check for us. Uh, I said, "Um, so in which country, sir, do you invest? And he proceeded to read a list of five countries that, in the Transparency International Index, were three standard deviations below Latin America, right? Um, So exactly what we consider corrupt or how corruption affects us. Uh, you know maybe that maybe it is in the eye of the beholder I think sometimes it is too easy an explanation. PPE I did not go to Oxbridge um, but uh, I was a politician once and uh, I think the reason and this is Simon and I have sort of had this conversation in private we can have it in public now is an effective policy leader is not somebody who, uh, who gives a press conference and says, we've done all the work, we're very confident that the elasticity of A to B is not 0.5. Okay. If you utter ever, students, never utter the word elasticity in public. Never, never, <laughs> never, never. never. Um, an effective policy leader is somebody who can say this policy is just, it is unjust, it is fair, it is unfair. It will add or detract to human freedom or from human freedom. And for that, I think economists or political scientists, with all due respect, are pretty poor guides. Uh, for that, I think a little p, you know, one of the p's in the PPE comes in uh, very, very handy. Last but not least, uh, the, the, the the question from Australia, I think, is a good one, and I want to take it in the following sense. Um, you know, we are here in an elite institution. We have inv- in, you know invited two professors from another elite institution, uh, and we've discussed things that are very elite. Um, And I hope that particular provenance and that particular subject matter will not blind us to a very obvious fact, or at least it is very obvious to me. A lot of the political, at least in many countries, including leading Western countries, have done terribly in recent years. Yash and I are talking about this at tea today precisely because they're perceived as arrogant, because they're distant, because they say elasticity in public, because their financing is murky, because they're too close to business. You know, the list is very long. So I think, perhaps as a way of concluding, I'd like to think that, yes, at the LSC from 42 countries and the MPA right now, we will be training political elites, but we will be training much better, open-minded, representative, and, of course, effective political elites. Thanks very much.
0: So let me just close with a few words. First, thank you to Andreas for an excellent talk and an inspiring vision for the new School of Public Policy. And to the panelists for stirring things up and, uh, and making us think. I suspect a lot of you are like me, left a bit uncomfortable after this talk. Uncomfortable because, you know, Certainly, if I spoke personally, I've spent most of my professional career being a civil servant, both in national governments and in in the international system. I've been a policy nerd for most of my life, thinking that ever more rigorous analysis would deliver technocratic solutions to the problems that we face. And it's uncomfortable to think that that may not be the case. Um, I have also been in those magical moments when you have a partnership between a really good values-based politician and really smart technocrats who can figure out how to turn those values into effective policy that actually makes people much better off. And I think you've put your finger on something, which is we've probably, in schools of public policy so far, focused too much on training those technocrats and probably not enough on the values-based politics. And I think the LSE is sort of a uniquely placed institution to try and redress that. Uh, You know, one of the people in the Fabian circles, H.G. Wells, once said, um, education is a race between civilization and catastrophe. And I think sometimes these days it feels like catastrophe is winning that race. (laughs) Right? The challenge for us is to define an educational offering that ensures that civilization wins, <laughs> for all of our sakes. Uh, and uh, and I think rethinking the way politics and policy happens in the 21st century will be the job of the school, and I couldn't be more delighted as to who we have to lead that. So thank you all for coming.
2: Watch this